Hello, and welcome to Relevate Presents Scholars Ship, the podcast where we use real research to analyze, scrutinize, and humanize your favorite TV and movie couples. I'm your host, Eric Goodcase. Hello, and welcome to a special psychological thriller edition of Relevate Presents Scholarship. We're talking about the movie The Invisible Man that came out for recently starring Elizabeth Moss. And here with us to talk about that is Dr. Autumn Bermea. Dr. Bermea is a soon-to-be assistant professor in the Department of Family Sciences or Human Sciences? Uh, human Sciences. Human Sciences at The Ohio State University. That <laughs> pains me to say, um, but I decided <laughs> to do that for you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm from Michigan. Just saying uh, the word like that in front <laughs> just feels wrong in every possible way. Um, but here I am saying it. So, uh, Dr. Maya, thank you for joining us. Yeah, I'm really excited. And again, with us as always is the Spinderella to my salt and pepper. It's Dr. Denzel Jones. Denzel, how you doing? Doing well, doing well. Glad to be here. So uh, I always look forward to what... Uh, what dynamic duo you're going to give us each time we come up here? So well, this is a trio this time. I'm giving myself two people to be, but I felt yeah. like if I said salt and pepper, people would think I just meant the seasoning. So I had to, I had to step up my game a little bit. Well, I'm, I'm sure that. Well, I don't know. I could be just making a false assumption, but I don't know if many people would still get the reference. But we're here. You know what? I just want people to Google who the heck is Spinderella because someone needs to give her attention. There we go. <laughs> so let's get uh talking about the invisible man but before we do that uh dr Bermea, if you want to talk a little bit about your research interest or your professional interest anything like that and kind of introduce yourself to the public uh you now have the floor yeah thank you yeah so i'm really excited to be talking about this movie a lot of it does you know as y'all have watched it it deals with a lot of issues related to intimate partner violence and domestic violence and that's where a lot of my research lies. Specifically, I do a lot of work with LGBTQ plus folks. Um, this movie doesn't focus on that, but I've done a lot of work with women in different gender relationships too, and their processes of leaving, which is a lot of what this movie is about. And actually, so a lot of my work actually has focused on kind of the end of those relationships. So in this movie, we're going to, you know, talk about like leaving I've done work with like separation and leaving processes, custody arrangements after the fact, resources that are available to folks who are leaving. And so, you know, I'm not just interested in the relationship itself, but how to end that relationship and how to support survivors in leaving. Yeah. And as we'll talk about, we don't, I don't want to get too much into it, but as we'll talk about, that's an incredibly difficult process and <laughs> yeah. you know, stuff that, you know, is great that you're finding ways to uh, be helpful and find out what works and what doesn't in that process as well. So that's, that's uh, really important stuff. And I also wanted to just to like point out unrelated to interpersonal <laughs> violence that you met, use the term different gender relationship. And I just yeah. hope that you use that. So just yeah. a shout out to that. And just for the people <laughs> listening, the reason I'm shouting that out is because, you know, saying a gay relationship or a lesbian mm -hmm. relationship or gay marriage isn't necessarily accurate because a person might not be gay or lesbian. Mm -hmm. They might be bisexual or pansexual mm -hmm. or whatever the case might be. Not only that, the relationship isn't gay. <laughs> even if that is two gay people in a relationship, that's not a gay relationship. It's the relationship isn't gay. The people in the relationship are. Anyway, I'll take it back to what we're talking about today. <laughs> the Invisible Man. When did you see it? 
Why did you see it? What did you think of it? What was kind of your reactions to watching? What's your relationship like with the movie itself? So I actually watched it. I think it was one of the first movies that when we started shutting down for COVID that was about to come out in the theaters and they just said, hey, we're going to release it on, you know, on demand or Amazon or, you know, whatever it was. And, and I watched it around the time it came out. I had some friends recommend it to me. And one of the things that I was, as I was watching it was, you know, I went, because I'm a huge nerd, as I was watching it, I was like, wow, a lot of this is actually, I mean, obviously, it's a psychological horror thriller, there's a lot of crazy wild stuff going on. But there was so much where I was like, Oh, wow, that's actually very true to people who experience this, their experiences. And, you know, I was, I was definitely, but then at the same time, I couldn't think too long about it because then I'd get really freaked out about, you know, they have some real scary moments and there's some really scary moments and jumps and stuff like that. So that was my reaction to it. Yeah. So I always say that getting a PhD in some kind of like social science kind of ruins movies <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> but so just keep that in mind if you're interested in getting a PhD in a social science, you're going to ruin <laughs> pop culture. But it's still like, it's cool that, you know, you mentioned that like the jump scares and that kind of like brought you back into like mm-hmm. the movie itself. Even yeah. Though, I don't know. If, are you a scary movie person? So when I was a kid, I was so scared of scary movies. Like I couldn't, even the commercials, they freaked me out. And then as I got older, I got, I started getting more and more into them. And now I feel like I'm trying to catch up on all of the ones that I like missed in my childhood and stuff. And so now I'm, I'm always kind of the one who's like, oh, let's watch this or that, especially around, you know, Halloween and stuff. Okay. Yeah. I'm yeah. the opposite. <laughs> I hate scary movies. I don't like being scared. I won't do haunted houses. Oh, no. I, none of that stuff is appealing to me in any way. And I knew this was kind of like a scary movie, but I didn't realize, you know, how much of it was going to feel that way. And I definitely uh, definitely was on edge for a few hours afterwards. Um, but, you know, this is a movie that I actually hadn't heard of before you mentioned it, because um, it was one of those movies that came out around the time of COVID. Yeah. And, you know, I, I looked it up and I was like, oh, this is, a, this is a really interesting premise. I'm excited to see where this goes. And I, you know, I enjoyed the movie quite a bit for, you know, what it was. And even though I don't like being scared, and <laughs> it wasn't so outrageously scary that I just like couldn't watch it. It wasn't, it was, it was, yeah. it had enough of a human element to it and a realistic element, to mm-hmm. it, which was, you know, made it scarier in some ways, but less scary in like a jump scare way, which is. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I thought the same thing. So Denzel, have you seen this movie? Or are you familiar with this movie at all? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> okay. I just, I just feel like I give the same answer every time we come up here. <laughs> no, that's why I ask. Is because I love hearing that answer so much. <laughs> <laughs> I like um, you, just, you just sit in there and just smile, and I just smile back. <laughs> and then the guest is always like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> yeah, I do apologize that those of you who are listening through the audio can't see the, um, the look on Denzel's face whenever I ask him about this. <laughs> Um, I, but, well, yeah. I, will, I will add that, uh, you know, as we're talking about scary movies, uh, we're talking about scary movies as a genre, not as in the scary movie. Yeah. yeah totally different things. <laughs> not the scary movie franchise. <laughs> Horror movies, uh, thriller movies, things that are meant to kind of get the heart pumping. Um, I can handle the scary movies as the, the franchise, <laughs> the comedies. I can handle those. Those are, those are easier to handle. I can't handle the uh, the horror. Scary kind of movies. That's fair. Um, so Denzel bring a kind of an outside opinion and maybe ask some questions, but um, and have some insights about a lot of the other stuff. But um, 
maybe not quite about the movie itself. You'll get to learn <laughs> about the movie itself. I feel like this is our uh, 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 pop culture um, 101 for Denzel in a lot of ways. It always is. about stuff he doesn't watch. You sent me that, uh, you sent me either email or a text and you're like, hey, uh, I'm going to watch the movie in case you wanted to watch it. And I don't even think I responded because I was like, Eric, no, I'm not going to watch it. I'm going to come up here and we're going to learn together. You did respond. You did respond. I did respond good. You did respond, okay. yeah. Maybe you'll right. be inspired to watch it by the end of this. You'll want to get, you know, some popcorn. And- <laughs> there we, we should start in each each podcast episode with, uh, okay, on a scale of one to five, how likely are you going to watch the movie? Oh, that's good. I like that. I like that. <laughs> so let's talk about it now that we're here. So The Invisible Man, um, the opening scene is, you know, it's a dialogue-less scene. It's just a scene of basically of uh, Elizabeth Moss's character, Cecilia, leaving in a, you know, slightly different kind of way, considering the person she is with is a tech genius, you know, uh, is uh, a leader in the world in optics, as they say later. So it's a little bit more complicated, her leaving process, than maybe an average person, but certainly a lot of parallels that you can see. So thinking about this scene... You know, just from the scene itself, what were your kind of reactions uh, watching it? And then, you know, how did it tie to kind of tie into some of the stuff that you're familiar with through knowing about this topic? Yeah. So when I, I went in and I, when I saw it for the first time, I didn't fully know what it was about. So I didn't exactly know what she was doing. Right. But mm-hmm. um, as you know, she she's going around the house and she gets this bag out from the attic. She opens up the attic. There's like a hidden duffel bag, overnight bag, something like that in there. And it kind of hit me what she was doing, right? I was like, oh, she's she's leaving this guy. She's getting out of here. And as I was going through, you know, I was thinking, actually, through this first scene and through a couple other scenes after, I was thinking like, wow, these are actually a lot of the things when we work with women that we actually, and men too, to be honest, um, anybody, we recommend for them to do. And I kind of even like, I made a little list. I was like, Oh, look, she, first off, I mentioned that she packs that bag, right? She had the bag. It was not only like a pack bag with her necessities. It was also hidden really well. Right. So we recommend that to victims and survivors just to have like a grab bag ready to go. She has the physical layout plan of the house. Right. So she knows kind of, okay, this is how I'm getting out. Of course, like you said, this guy's, you know, this tech, brilliant multimillionaire. It's not necessarily the house. We'd all be leaving. But um, she knows, like, he has all these cameras set up around the house, and she knows how to avoid them, right? A lot of times, I know y'all have talked about partner violence on this podcast, and y'all watched you, and mm-hmm. the surveillance is often an aspect, you know? Um, so she kind of knows where the cameras are. Um, she's cognizant about being am I being watched right now at the end right before she leaves her dog comes and she's like okay I need to make sure my pet's okay because a lot of times abusers will use pets to get back at somebody or try to get back at someone after they've left um she calls her sister so she has someone on the call for her who comes up they have a meeting place so she has somebody And then she also has somewhere planned to go ahead of time. So she's not just leaving into the night. She knows where she's going. So as, you know, I was watching this, I was thinking, wow, she's actually doing the things that oftentimes we recommend folks to do. 
Yeah, I had the same reaction watching and thinking about, you know, um, in times where as a therapist and Denzel, you can uh, chime in on this as well, but um, we've had clients where we do some kind of safety plan. Yeah. And we talk about, you know, you know, saving money and having a place to save, mm-hmm. st- store that. And we talk about, you know, having a place where you can kind of like hide certain things or have a bag, like mm-hmm. you said, and um, important to kind of have a person or a place you would go if it were to happen. Not that we expect it to be a spur of the moment thing, but just yeah. in case it is a spur of the moment yeah. thing where it has to happen quickly. Yeah. Um, so you'd have some kind of plan and you're not just kind of like having to kind of like figure it out while you're in this kind of like probably pretty terrified space. Yeah. So kind of creating that plan. And she follows, you know, uh, what we would, you know, as you mentioned, like a plan that was like very well thought out. And again, mm-hmm. obviously she has a little bit more to take care of in terms of turning <laughs> off cameras and um, knowing his passwords and yeah. all these things that she would have had to do in preparation, but just, you know, an excellent point there. And I'm really glad you brought up the um, pet as well. I forgot the dog's name. Uh, was it Zeus? It was something... Something I wanted to say like Duke, that. but I knew that was wrong. <laughs> Zoo sounds right. <laughs> I could be wrong too. But that was really important too because, you know, oftentimes children or pets are often also abused in situations like this in a means of kind of like intimidation or in a mm-hmm. means of kind of like uh, manipulation in a sense of like it's someone who is or something that is, you know, um, kind of helpless in the mm-hmm. situation yeah. and kind of like manipulating. So I think that's a really important point to bring up as well. Thinking about the leaving process. I know this is a question that, you know, is posed often and is often quite offensive in terms of how it's posed. (laughs) I have a feeling I know what this question is going to be. (laughs) To talk about in terms of understanding. So, you know, the question that gets brought up a lot is why does a person put up Mm -hmm. with that? Why doesn't a person Mm -hmm. leave earlier? Why do, why don't some individuals who are in a relationship like this leave? Uh, I just wanted to pose that to you as a way to kind of like, you know, discuss this premise and why it might be a flawed question, but also, you know, help people understand a little bit more about that. Yeah, you're right. It is a question that gets asked all the time. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't get asked directly. But like, if I'm, if you know, I tell people, this is the work I do, and we're chatting, and they're like, well, why don't you know, and they'll bring it up in kind of hinted ways where I have to go about mm-hmm. and kind of like, okay, let's, debunk this this might not have been the conversation you wanted to have but you know I have to to say stuff about it it's an incredibly difficult difficult process to leave and actually um, research says it takes about on average between seven to eight attempts to leave an abusive relationship before it is final and so a, one of the things that, you know, long time ago in a lot of violence research, we heard the phrase of battered women syndrome, which is the idea of, you know, this person, in this case, women, that men weren't even recognized as survivors at this point, were so beaten down that eventually they just had to, quote, like, take the abuse and they couldn't do anything. But what we see now time and time again is that is completely debunked. That is not... You know, that is not a thing. People who experience abuse are not helpless. Their options are often limited, but there's very rarely, if almost, you know, never actual helplessness. It's just, it's a really difficult thing to leave. And I think this movie showed it really, really well. And I think one of the big things that's both, you know, when you're considering leaving as well as, you know, even after you've left is this idea of power. When there's a power imbalance in the relationship, it's not as easy as just walking out the door, right? So we know 
that leaving a relationship is the most dangerous time. Like leaving an abusive relationship is the most dangerous time. If a person has, you know, control over their partner and that partner says, okay, you're not going to have control over me, they're going to do what they can to maintain that power and control, right? And so in this movie, this guy, like we said, he's a multimillionaire. He's an, uh, an optics, you know, he, and we'll find out later what he does exactly, but he has power in a way that most people don't, right? But when I was watching this, he actually does have these things just in a much scaled up version. As I was, I was kind of making notes and I was like, oh, look, he, he actually has the things that we see really often. He just has a lot more of them. And so money is often one of the biggest things we see of, you know, economic abuse where you get your partner to not work for many, many years, you force them to not work, and suddenly you hold all the money in the relationship, right? So he has all the money. And she actually, Elizabeth Moss has a great line in here that I loved where she says, that's what money and power buy you, they buy you people which I loved that because it's true because you'll see throughout the movie, he has holds on all these other people who help try to get her back. And that also goes to influence. A lot of times abusers have influence over the people that you love. There's also folks who, you know, they might threaten to harm people. So he does that, right? He both threatens to and actual actually harm the people that she loves. So it's like, if you leave me I'll hurt myself, I'll hurt you, but also I'll hurt your family. And there's also, which I don't know if we want to touch on this yet, but there's also, we see a lot of reproductive coercion where it's harder to leave if you have a child. And reproductive coercion is when you force someone or trick someone into getting pregnant or getting someone else pregnant against their consent. And I don't know, again, if you want to talk about that yet, but that does come up in this movie. Yeah, certainly. And even um, before we have the big reveal for that, that's (laughs) something that's mentioned as something that he wanted to do because that would, you know, put her in a position where it'd be even more difficult to leave. Yeah. So follow-up question. uh, So Eric, uh, you know, uh, introduced the question of, you know, why don't you just leave? Uh, And that kind of being the premise of kind of where we are now, how we got here. And so thinking about that, and I'm thinking about, let's just say I'm just some random person, some random <laughs> friend, right? And so wh- how does the conversation look differently if it's some other friend who, mm-hmm. you know, um, we're talking about their attitudes, right? Like they're not mm-hmm. in that lived experience, but we're just having a hypothetical conversation. Of, okay, well, why don't this person just leave? How does that conversation look differently than mm-hmm. if someone who's a survivor comes to me and says, hey, I'm in this situation. And maybe they've internalized a lot of these things that you're talking about, maybe feels that they deserve to be in this place or whatever the case may be. How do those conversations look differently? That makes sense. Yeah, no, that does. A lot of times, if it's a hypothetical conversation, I do a lot with folks to kind of draw it back into the real. Um, So I'll give examples of people I know of um, experiences, you know, and sometimes, well, and it depends. So sometimes if I'm talking with somebody who I know, you know, I'll share the story of um, one of my closest friends. And one of the reasons I got into partner violence research was he was leaving an abusive partner and he was a gay man and he didn't quite know how how services were going to help him, right? Or if they, it was in Texas, which is a pretty conservative state. And so there was a lot of kind of trying to navigate 
those systems, right? And I'll bring that back and I'll say, well, this, you know, happened to a friend of mine and blah, 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 not blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I shouldn't say it like that, but you know. Um, sure. <laughs> but, and so kind of bringing in that empathetic level to it and storytelling. And that's one of the reasons I, I like this podcast and I've enjoyed it. And I liked it, you know, for this movie too, is stories just really connect with people and they make you think like, oh, huh, I never thought of it that way before. But, you know, sometimes if I'm talking with somebody who I know that won't impact them as much, as a social scientist, I'm able to bring out some of those statistics, right? To say what I said earlier, you know, on average, it takes between seven to eight times to leave before it sticks, right? I've done research on women's, women specifically, but mental processes of leaving. And I talk about what some of those mental cognitive things that are going that are often going on during that time. And oftentimes, it's really not just storytelling or just research, there's kind of a combination there. If I'm talking to folks who haven't experienced it, if I'm talking with somebody who has experienced it, often that conversation, and I'm sure Eric, you can probably talk to this a lot more, the conversations usually a little bit more gentle. Because oftentimes, if you've been in these relationships, you you have been controlled for so long. You don't need a person on the outside telling you, you need to do X. You encourage it. You say, here's what we can do. Here's what I can do. But you don't. And that kind of, it goes against all of our instincts, right? And people are never quite satisfied with that because you want to, you just want to say, no, you come to my house tonight. We'll take care of it. But that's not always feasible. So I, you know, when I'm talking with a person who, you know, is just not in that experience, it's often a little bit more of a blunt conversation versus somebody who has experienced it. I love that you bring that up, that gentleness, because I think, you know, and I haven't worked with, you know, a a ton of clients in this way, but the thing that I find to be the most powerful in this conversation is one, not to be so judgmental in the sense Mm -hmm. of like why they're in the relationship. Mm Mm-hmm. But just asking like something like, what are the things you do got out of the relationship? What are the things that have been, you know, have been positive or something like that? Or why, what keeps you in the relationship? Because a lot of times it's people who are kind of like um, in the beginnings of what feels like um, a manipulative relationship mm-hmm. or something that could turn into be like yeah. um, IPV or something like that. And just the fact that I'm not judging them and just the fact that I'm trying to figure out what they're you know, what they're like and what they do and what they're going on for. And what, um, you know, a lot of times in conversations about this, if they're talking to a friend, they're going to get a lot of, you should leave, you should leave, you should break up with them, all that kind of, or or her or all that kind of thing. Um, And a lot of times that puts up more of like a wall. It's like, you don't get me. You don't understand my situation. You're just telling me to leave and you're not even trying to listen to me. So just the idea of trying to listen to anything about, the process of why they're still leaving, what they're getting out of the relationship, you know, like just getting either, you know, we can talk about this a little bit too, just the person, a lot of times uh, individuals in this relationship might be really intense at the beginning, like that feeling mm-hmm. of like, oh, this relationship's going really fast and that can feel good sometimes potentially. Or the person really cares about being this way or the person's very jealous, which makes me feel wanted or something along those <laughs> lines. Like obviously it, it's very different for different people, but a lot of times there is something, you know, that's, you know, circumstantial that's keeping the relationship or something that's kind of like personal to them that's keeping the relationship, or maybe they feel a certain way about themselves or whatever the case might be, but just kind of like being understanding and being there for them and being listening to them often is the thing that can be most powerful for them 
in terms of thinking about things differently. It's not just, oh, you don't get me. It's, oh, this person's trying to understand me. And that's mm-hmm. a different experience a lot of times. And and I think we also so often discount you talking about, you know, the motivations for staying is we discount feelings of love because yeah. it's so easy outside of the relationship to say, well, that's not love. If you loved your partner, you'd never treat them that way. It's easy to say that. But that really discounts a lot of what the survivor or the victim uh, feels for their partner. And I think, you know, if somebody's telling you there's not love in your relationship, you're not you're not going to necessarily want to listen to them. And we also know that, you know, when couples have children, there's, you know, a lot of not a lot of times, but sometimes the survivor will say, oh, well, this partner is a really good parent to my child. They, they harm me, but they would never harm my child. And of course, we know that, you know, if a child witnesses violence, they are being harmed. But, you know, in that case, it's like, well, I have to work these long shifts. My partner takes care of my child. My partner would never lay a hand on them. Why would I damage that relationship when it could, you know, harm my child in the long run? Yeah. Or what's the child going to do without a father, without a yeah. mother and those kind of like preconceived ideas of like, if it's yeah. a single parenthood, whereas you know, lots of single parents can have very successful uh, situations raising a child. I think there's still a lot of fear around the idea of what's mm-hmm. my child going to do without a male or female figure in their life. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. I appreciate the, uh, the responses and, and advice. <laughs> I think, you know, having my unique privileged perspective of, working with uh you know this population albeit very limited for me it's a lot easier to talk you know with these clients and doing a lot of the things that the both of you all have said and i also know that for people who don't like have my lens of focus or you know kind of my knowledge base or you know an understanding that you know from the same the place that i come from and understanding in that way you know they maybe they don't have those tools or those skill sets mm-hmm. and so uh one i want to say i appreciate you both um, talking about that, but also for two, I will say, uh, and being completely open and honest, I, uh, you know, the the hypothetical conversation that I also mentioned, those tend to be a lot harder for me. What, what really happens is, you know, someone says, okay, well, if they're really having a hard time, won't they leave? I either one shut down, I say, okay, no, <laughs> we're not going there. We're not talking about. I'm not going to argue with you about this. Or two, just go into full out rage mode, <laughs> and like, like nothing gets solved, right? <laughs> So I guess the next time those conversations come up, I'll just clip five minutes of this podcast and just <laughs> go, go, listen to, go listen to some very knowledgeable people talk about this. Uh, I like that. Uh, you can you can you can keep your rage and you don't have to like you don't have to <laughs> send it outwards. Oh, it is really hard though. I just wanted to say that to you, where I get the same where I'm like, I just want to. I don't want to have that. But I have that moment of like, in the hypothetical of like, I don't want to have this conversation, but I know I need to have this conversation. You know. For sure. And yeah. I also wanted to mention, too, about this topic. And we kind of covered this when we talked about the, uh, the show You, but um, individuals who um, might perpetrate interpersonal violence aren't monsters all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, they wouldn't have yeah. a partner at all if they were like that all the time. Mm-hmm. They're really good at manipulating. They, they've gained skills in manipulation and, and ways to kind of, like, maintain that power and control. And they've learned... Lots of different things. So it's not just that they're monsters all the time or like they're constantly doing something abuse. You know, we have that cycle of abuse that maybe a lot mm-hmm. of people are familiar with where the kind of a honeymoon phase and like another phase and then like a attention building phase before some event happens. But it's important to kind of keep that in mind and watching 
a mover or show like you, I think kind of really shows that because it's from his perspective and you see (laughs) that he's charming and you see that he's, you know, um, most of the time he's fairly kind to the person's face (laughs) and he does all these things that kind of, you know, set the stuff up, but don't actually kind of like, you know, it all kind of comes to a head and something happens later, (laughs) but you see his manipulation, you see how he's, and, and he's idealized, you know, you see people idealize his obsession. But I think that's an important thing to think about as well, especially when you ask that question about like, you know, what are you getting out of the relationship or whatever the case may be? Because they probably are getting some feeling of love or some kind of like they're enjoying something about it or they did in the past. Maybe they had a partner mm-hmm. who was very, whatever the case might be, uh, charming or kind or whatever the case might be. And then that kind of term. So again, it's not a person that is, I mean, I can't say never, but it's not usually a person who is, you know, abusive all the time or mean all the time or just mm-hmm. uh, controlling all the time. A lot of times there is this kind of like, ebb and flow to it that uh, allows for the manipulation component of this to take place yeah so let's take a step here into the next part yeah. of the movie so um she leaves she ends up staying with um do they ever define is he just a friend i don't know if he was a, a police officer i i think i want to say it was her sister's partner her police partner not like her dating uh, okay partner, i believe because at one point she makes reference to it i could be wrong about that but that's i believe what yeah, it was but supposed she, to be yeah she chooses to live with a friend or a co-worker of a sister mm-hmm. or someone who is in law enforcement who can kind of provide some of that extra uh, protection potentially uh but we also see some hypervigilance at mm-hmm. this point. So um, she ha- has trouble kind of like feeling comfortable going outside to get the mail. She does go and see she's, she's someone jogging and um, starts to kind of get activated in terms of mm-hmm. her fear. I really think they did a good job in the movie of like using the music to kind of like display <laughs> that. So again, even though it's just a jogger going by, you can feel her anxiety and her fear through how the music's playing. And then there's a couple other points as well. She's worried about someone hacking her webcam, mm-hmm. which obviously, you know, we would say is justified in the sense that <laughs> he has, you know, these these skills. But even even if it weren't quote unquote justified or rational, which again we can talk about the <laughs> issues with calling it that, you know, we still see a lot of that in individuals who um, go through an experience like this. I don't know if you wanted to talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, um, I like that you said something about rational, if you even wanted to call it that. And I, I really like that because a lot of times we do, we're like, well, that, that response is, you know, you're safe now. Why are you responding that way? But we know that PTSD is, it is a survival mechanism. It is a survival response. It is your body, even though you're technically out of this physically violent situation, it's your body doing everything to keep you alive, Right. And I loved when she's looking up when she thinks, you know, has someone bugged my computer? Because that's, you know, that's getting increasingly common as technology advances. You know, it's, sure. it's really, it's digital abuse, cyber abuse. We see it more so among like young adults and teenagers, but we definitely see it among adults too. And it's actually really smart in these situations when you're leaving to, maybe even get a new phone, but to look for tracker apps on your phone, to look for trackers on your car. So even after you've left, there's still that risk of stalking through those means, especially because so after you leave, the chances of physical violence go down. Obviously, in this movie, it's a little bit different, but your chances of physical violence go down just because you're not physically with that person. But it still happens. But other forms of violence continue. And I think that 
you know, with her PTSD and all of that is her body, you know, her body knows that and her body's trying to keep herself safe. Um, and I agree. I think the music did a really good, good way of doing that where you do. And especially as watching it, like as a horror movie, you have those moments with her where, you know, somebody is, you know, like you said, she's out getting the mail and somebody's running towards her. And you do as a viewer have the moment of like, oh, my God, <laughs> even though then you find out, oh, it's just fine. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and there's several moments that kind of happen after that in terms of the um, the very creepy, the first really creepy thing I think is the first creepy thing with the, in the bedroom with um, her sheets being pulled off and then oh. kind of stepping on the sheets, <laughs> where she's experiencing these things. She's the only one kind of noticing mm-hmm. it, and you know, um, I already forgot the guy's name. Uh, the, uh, the person Adrian. she's saying, like, Adrian. Oh, she's, oh no, Adrian's the actor. Adrian's the yeah. yeah, I can't remember. I don't have it written either. down. <laughs> I have so many other characters written down. I do not have his <laughs> name written down, but his her friend, who's the cop, who she's staying with, mm-hmm. you know, has to kind of like react to her having these experiences that, mm-hmm. again, are actually happening. Because mm-hmm. he's actually there. We find out later how he's doing this. But they don't know that. So thinking about, I guess, his response and thinking about, like, you know, even if these things weren't happening, you know, they could be a, a trauma mm-hmm. response. You know, what yeah. would be the ways to kind of, like, work with a person who's having mm-hmm. kind of these reactions or um, uh, might be hypervigilant to a point where we might, from the outside, say, isn't necessary. Uh, like yeah. From the outside might say that. But how we how might we have a conversation with someone or, like, work with someone who's experiencing that yeah that's a good question and I could actually I'd probably defer to you guys on a lot of it um but you know there's been a really big push towards trauma-informed care right which is kind of I hear it used a lot as a buzzword and sometimes it's not always used accurately but part of that is recognizing that whatever you're experiencing is real to you. It's not about denying that person's reality, but it's also about, you know, how can we work together to help you be able to move through the world in a way where you're not so impacted by your traumas. Um, and I haven't done quite that, you know, the, the practice part of it. Um, so I don't, you know, want to speak out of my boundaries in terms of the the specific practices with it. But I think, again, it just goes to a lot of like the validating, you know, validating that person's experiences, especially if they've been controlled for such a long time. Yeah. And I'm trying to think back to how he handled it. I remember I had kind of mixed feelings with how he handled some of the things. And, you know, I think he did a really, I think he was trying very hard to be understanding. Yeah. I think he did get a little frustrated time to time. And yeah. I can understand that, especially in the instance where um, uh, Adrian hit his daughter mm-hmm. and you know, the only yeah. other person in the room to anyone else was mm-hmm. Cecilia. So yeah. I can see where he's having that, you know, stress response there. Mm-hmm. But I could tell he was getting a little frustrated with certain ones. And, and that's, you know, understandable. I think, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's, that's valid in a sense, but I, you know, being understanding and empathetic and validating mm-hmm. those responses is really important. And yeah. even just kind of like an understanding of post-traumatic stress, because I think mm-hmm. a lot of people don't understand. I like, and I like how you talk about it because it is, it's an adaptive response. It is the body and the brain responding to it, uh, an awful event. And it's basically saying, I don't want that to happen again. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do anything in my power. So that doesn't happen. Yeah. So, you know, 
what are the three tenets of, this is simplified, of PTSD or that kind of like avoidance, yeah. which makes sense, right? If I'm going to, if I went through this awful thing, I'm going to avoid anything that can kind of remind me of it or could be close to it. You know, those intrusion symptoms, whether it's, you know, flashbacks or dreams or just kind of like intrusive thoughts. Again, same idea, right? Like, yes, it's not pleasant to re-experience, but it's a reminder that this thing happened and you don't want it to happen again. Yeah. And then, you know, the irritability or the uh, hypervigilance or all these kind of like changes to mood or reactions to things potentially. And again, that's that same thing, right? Like I'm hypervigilant because I'm trying to protect myself, you know, it's mm-hmm. all the stuff that's going on. So all of these things that kind of occur, again, are adaptive and just being able to kind of like be understanding of that and um, empathetic to that experience can be something that can be really helpful for a person. Denzel, I'm not sure if there's anything you want to add uh, that I'm forgetting. No, thank you. Thank you. Covered it. So things start kind of small in terms of, so, uh, oh, I, um, I even forgot to mention. So Adrian supposedly dies by suicide. The, the yeah. abusive partner. Quick question. Adrian is the partner, the abusive partner. Adrian's the partner. Yeah. The abusive partner. Who is Cecilia? Cecilia is the main character. Gotcha. Cecilia and her sister have to go to Adrian's brother's law office. So Tom is the the name of the brother. Yeah. Uh, a lot to follow here in terms of names. Basically, <laughs> um, you learn that Adrian died by suicide. We learned that he left a bunch of money to Cecilia. Uh, we also find out that, I mean, the letter for her to come in came to the address that no one was supposed to know where she was. So that's mm-hmm. also kind of freaky. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he tries to read this prepared statement, which um, her sister stops him from reading, which was good. I don't think there's anything else that we wanted to mention with here. Is there any other reactions or thoughts that you had as we kind of talk about this, you know, experience? Just that you you picked up on the thing about the mail came to the house where nobody was supposed to know where she was. Because isn't that just such a you know, in a horror movie or in anything in the place you think you're safe and the one, you know, one little thing will happen. That's not a big, scary thing, but it's this thing that makes you go, Oh my God, I don't know if I'm safe right now or not. Um, that can cause a, you know, really big, a really big reaction. It's a really big, like power (laughs) move, I guess. But no, I think that that's, that's kind of what happens. And I agree. I like where you, where you said, you know, that the sister said, no, you can't, because he does, he has this statement prepared that, you know, where the brother of the abuser says, you know, I'm going to read this statement. And it's kind of like one, or at least at the time you think one last way to try to control her, to make his presence known. And a lot of times, you know, abusers will, will do that. Even if they're not in the room, they'll try to find ways to keep that control. And that's one of them. And I love that the sister just said, no, (laughs) we're not doing that. And it was, it was, I think uh, fairly accurate in the sense of it was meant to kind of induce guilt. It seemed just from like the part she started. And, you know, it's a very common manipulation tactic, even, you know, uh, we didn't see this, but the threat of suicide or things like Mm -hmm. that can sometimes be a way to kind of like manipulate or control someone, you know, whether it's, whether it's serious or not that they're considering suicide, Mm -hmm. it's, it's still, manipulative in the sense that they're doing it in a way to kind of control someone's behavior. Again, even if they completely feel that way, it's still manipulative. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Lots of, lots of buildup after this. This is where like the scary movie part starts to happen. 
Adrian's clearly seen scary movies. He knows he has to like start small <laughs> and build up. And he does these kind of like smaller, creepy things where they kind of do this mostly with the camera work where they're kind of like uh-huh. showing weird angles and showing that she's kind of like feels a little off. I think a door opens. Yeah. The breakfast catches fire, although I don't know if that was her or him. I'm assuming he did something to make it. I always assumed it was I always assumed it was him, but yeah. yeah. I don't think it would catch fire that quickly. (laughs) Then she finds out she was drugged when she goes to do an interview in her um her uh sketches. Yeah. She's an architect. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um we're taken as well. So all this stuff. And that that was actually one thing that I noticed as being, you know, a big Thinking about how this show, this movie like can so reflect reality is that I'm going to stop you from getting a job aspect yeah. of it. You know, in one hand, it was I'm going to make you feel totally unsure of your own thoughts that like gaslighting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where she's saying she op- she goes for a job interview at an architecture firm and she opens her portfolio and nothing's in there. And then the guy, the guy who's interviewing her is really nice, you know, and he's like, oh, just send you know, send us your prints when you get the chance, all this stuff. And so you think, okay, the, he knows, he's understanding the interview is going really well. And then she collapses in the middle of the job interview. And that's something that, I mean, most abusers don't have, you know, an, oh, <laughs> I shouldn't spoil it quite yet. You can spoil, have... spoil it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> that's what we're here for. We're all about spoiling it. If he, you haven't uh, seen the movie yet, you may want to skip the next part. There I, you go. <laughs> <laughs> he um he he's you know he's this he's big in the field of like cyber optics and stuff and he's created his own invisible suit invisibility suit i guess you could guess that with the name is the invisible man so i guess sure. you could yeah. kind of start putting stuff together but you know most abusers don't have that but they do have that ability you know i've heard of cases where They'll, you know, when the woman's about to start a new job or the man, um, this has come up in my own research with interviews with women. So I keep saying she, but I just want to know, I absolutely should not only be saying she here. Um, I should be saying, you know, they, because people across any genders can experience this. But, you know, they'll, the abuser will call so many times in the night over and over and over again. So the next day when the victim or survivor goes to work, they're so tired, they can't focus you know, or they'll show up at their place of work. Um, And so all of these, this is another thing where I was just like, oh man, he has this, if it was a playbook, he has it down pat, you know? Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point because I didn't quite think about that in regards to like it being specifically about the job. I just saw it as another point on the, you know, escalating events that were happening. But I think it's a really good point to bring it in. Yeah, and for sure it's a big, it's a huge escalation thing to go from being, you mentioned the thing about the bed sheets, so they get pulled off her, and then I, that is one thing that in a horror movie just gets me every time. I can't handle it. But, you know, it goes from being little things like that to I'm putting, you know, drug, I'm drugging you. And yeah. 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 And then let's talk about the the first confrontation a little bit too. So yeah. well, the first confrontation post his um, supposed suicide. So kind of out of nowhere, Sydney, who is uh, James is the cop's name. We learned. Thank you, Denzel. <laughs> so Sydney is the daughter and Sydney mm-hmm. gets hit in the face. And mm-hmm. again, only person in the room is yeah. Cecilia. Well, we know that that's something's going weird here. And obviously James freaks out and takes yeah. Sydney away uh, and kind of leaves 
Cecilia alone in the house. And it's it's a really to me it's just a really awful scene because it's after all of this has happened, yeah. you know, and and Cecilia's just crying, and the the little girl Sydney is saying, "Oh, well, we should have a girls' night. Let's kick my dad out. We're gonna have a girls' night and eat junk oh, food yeah. and all these things." And, and it's comforting her, and it's just a really you know it's a really sweet moment. And then you're right, she gets she gets hit, and of course they think that Cecilia's the only person in the room, and yeah. Yeah. And then Cecilia is another thing that makes this, you know, maybe um, I wouldn't call it unrealistic, but slightly unrealistic in the sense that Cecilia is one of the most resourceful people I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she is incredibly smart. She has, she came up with a few tactics. She called his phone, found out it was like in the attic. She goes up yeah. to the attic Ooh. and was like, which, you know, Seems like a silly move, but also it's like she has this kind of plan. She throws the paint mm-hmm. off uh, off the attic onto the ladder and, t- and able to, to be able to see him. Yeah, like he is pretty resourceful in a way that a lot of people I think would have trouble with. But she's incre- she does an incredible job with that. But we see the suit for the first time, and I couldn't yeah. quite tell what was happening. Obviously, we find out later what the suit looks like, and it makes more sense. We just see the kind of the paint splash on this kind of black mass. And you're like, oh, something's there, which obviously is the first, one of the first kind of like real freak out jump scare moments. Yeah. <laughs> and then they have kind of a, a violent tussle. And, you know, up until this point, Adrian was being really manipulative, right? He was trying to gaslight. He was trying to do something to freak her out mm-hmm. and kind of like you know, escalate it here and there. But this is the first time where it gets really violent, where he is starting to choke her and attack her. In in my head, I kind of interpreted it as he was doing all this manipulation, kind of cold and calculated. Then she made him mad because she outsmarted him with the paint yeah. and then kind of like mm-hmm. really kind of took the next step. Uh, I don't know if there's any reactions you had thinking about this kind of like big confrontation. You know, it starts off with James and Sydney leaving. And it's kind of the two of them in the house together. Yeah. Yeah. And it. It really is. I agree that that's what I thought too. It was, you know, she's kind of, she's outsmarted him. She's trying to figure it out. He's kind of like, oh, you know, I, it's harder to mess with you than I thought it was going to be. So I have to do something else. And that's such too, a thing that we often see the escalation within abusive relationships as well of like, I'm going to do these things to manipulate you. And then it, over time, it often escalates. Right. But yeah, that's that's definitely you also I do I love that you mentioned that she was resourceful because I love you getting to see her. You know, obviously she's scared, but she's also starting to you talked we talked about the PTSD earlier, where you, and it being a survival mechanism. Well now she's in survival mode at this point in time, doing her best, especially because he has really made sure that she is alone. Do you both physically are yeah, physically and emotionally, because right, he's physically driven this guy who, you know, he's a cop. Um, so he knows how to be a protector. He's physically gotten him out of the house. There's also a scene before then that we haven't really talked about where you find out that he has hacked into her email. He sent this email to her sister yes. mm-hmm. and he said, you know, you're really overbearing. You're, I resent having you in my life, all of these really nasty things. So when she shows up to the sister's house saying, I need your help, things are getting really bad. The sister essentially is like, you need help, get help. 
and closes the door in her face. So he's done a really good job at this point of when he turns violent, of having really, really isolated her. Yeah, and I think let's talk about that too, because that's something that's really accurate to kind of a lot of situations of abuse or manipulation in that isolation component. So I don't know Mm -hmm. if you want to talk more about that. And obviously Adrian doing it in a way to kind of like turn use the information he probably knows from being with Cecilia for a long time and kind of using that against her relationship with her sister, which we already know is a little bit kind Mm -hmm. of touchy. And then obviously using his invisible suit to um, make James feel like he, she hit Sydney. So like all this isolation, what are the kinds of things that happen more in like a real life sense? The thing about the email can be, I mean, pretty true to life. I've spoken with adolescents who have told me about how their partners have, you know, our ex-partners, actually, their ex-partner has sent Facebook messenger chats, right? Because it's it's easier to hack somebody's Facebook in real life than it, it might be to your phone, I guess, depending on your tech capabilities, but, you know, has hacked in, has gotten his Facebook password and sends messages to the new girl that he's talking to. And so, you know, that really, we do, we see that happen in terms of isolating. Um, It can be and pretending it's him, you know, but other times it can just be, it can be things like telling the victim or survivor like, oh, I never liked your friend X. I never liked them. They don't treat you. They don't treat you well, right? Um, and it's one thing to be a concerned partner saying, I, I genuinely don't like the way they treat you versus taking tar- target at somebody who can be a source of support. On a more personal story, a friend of mine was in a very controlling relationship and it was right. I was moving apartments or something like that. And I couldn't be at the day he wanted to throw her a, a birthday party. And he called me, we had always butted heads because, you know, I never liked him. And he called me and he's like, well, I'm, I'm throwing a party for her on this day. And I said, what can we do the day after? I cannot do this day. I'm moving this, that, and the other. And he was insistent. He was insistent. He wanted this day. And so when the day of her party rolled around, he told her, I invited Autumn, but she refused to come. I think it was because, you know, because I was throwing it. She ref- And we didn't actually talk for quite some time after that. And so that's, Something that unfortunately isn't too out of the ordinary in situations like this. Yeah. And, you know, just even things I'm thinking of like acting maybe over the top sad or disappointed or angry mm-hmm. when a person chooses to spend time with others, as opposed to, yeah. oh, I thought you were going to spend time with me, and mm-hmm. kind of like using that as like a way of guilting a person or. Um, like you said, kind of like, I never liked this person or, you know, it's kind of like bringing, trying to like bring out the the bad traits of family or friends or just get them to kind of like put more distance between them so that if they do need help, there's not as many places to reach out to. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it, it will be, you know, more, you know, and to, trying to poison, like we were talking about trying to poison them against their friends and family. But other times, you know, it'll be, you know, I've heard cases of the abuser reaching out to a sister or whatever saying, I think, you know, you did X. The survivor is really mad at you. I think it's just best if you don't, you know, pretending to care about them, right? To say like, it's probably just best if you don't come around for a while, you know, yeah. that kind of thing too, unfortunately. Um, 
And a lot of times it's one of those things like in, in this movie, it's very obvious what he's doing, right? It's a very clear, but in real life, it's often not quite that obvious, not even just for like the victim survivor, but also sometimes even for the people in that person's life, it's just not always as obvious yeah. as it is in this movie. I think that's a really good point too, where it's not, you know, this outrageous or over the top or it's not, I wouldn't even call it over the top because it is something that can happen, but it's not so um, exaggerated or, or very clear to see. And obviously mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the other attempt. He has to isolate him, uh, her when she literally kills her sister and frames her. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. is the other <laughs> giant jump scare that happens. So Denzel, oh, yeah. um, since you're not familiar with the movie, so she, so after the big violent confrontation, she gets away, she goes to the old house where she lived with Adrian and finds the invisible suit, figures it out, um, what's been going on and how he's been able to do this. She calls her sister is like, Hey, I need to talk to you right now. We don't know who it is at the first. And then we see her mm-hmm. meeting with her sister. Yeah. Um, they kind of have a little heart to heart for a second. And then Cecilia starts to reveal that she knows something. And all of a sudden we see a knife draw across the sister's throat and the knife go right into Cecilia's hand. Mm. Um, which scared the crap out of me. One. Oh, me too. Me too. <laughs> and I saw it happen. I'm just like, oh, I don't know how she's, she's getting out of this. Um, <laughs> like that looks bad. Now she's holding a knife and her sister is dead in front of her. So obviously everyone in the restaurant freaks out. It's like a whole thing. The other thing I wanted to mention. But wait, but it was really, was it really him in the suit? Or yeah. Was it actually him in the suit. So that's definitely a means of isolation. A very, that one would be <laughs> kind of like, a, um, you know, a, a more extreme version of that yeah. but it certainly, um, <laughs> happens. Uh, and again, throughout this process and she ends up going to uh, some kind of institution. She is, you know, she can still see him, which again, part of her resourcefulness and <laughs> abilities is she always knows where he's at. She looks like right at him, you know, ever mm-hmm. since the point where the sheets were torn off and she looks right in the chair, she can pretty much see where he is, which also makes me wonder about all these other people. Who just like don't hear his footsteps or don't like sense another person in the room, whatever, not important. Yeah. It's a movie. But essentially <laughs> she ends up in this institution. Uh, she knows he's there while she's trying to kind of like survive essentially. And she tries to kind of go through it. But I did want to kind of mention, you mentioned gaslighting and I think uh-huh. we should maybe we can uh, define it and kind of like go through it again, because a lot of the things that he's doing is to make her feel like she's crazy or to make others feel like she's crazy. And, you know, she's, you know, now in some kind of institution where she's being kind of like uh, strapped down because people are kind of viewing her as a crazy person, basically. So um, I don't know if you wanted to just kind of like mention gaslighting or talk about or talk about how it relates to how you see it in real life or. I think that gaslighting is the fact that it happens in real life was one of the things that made, or at least to me, the scene where she's getting, you know, arrested and hauled away to the, to this mental health institution. We're not really super clear on what exactly it is, but that makes it so scary is the fact that, you know, she's trying to, she's trying to tell them what's happening and no one will believe her. Cause isn't that just such a, you know, in terms of making a horror movie or anything, knowing something's real and no one around you believing it. And that to me is just one of the scenes that got the most under my skin was that. And I think it's because, you know, again, I've you know, we've said it a million times during this, but it's such an extreme version of it. 
but it's true. And so gaslighting is, I hear it used not always correctly lately. Very true. Yes. It gets kind of (laughs) thrown around, um, but it is. It's a buzzword. It it is. is. Yeah. And as somebody who studies intimate partner violence, it makes me, it makes me a little bit frustrated because I'm like, no, it's a very real thing that a lot of people goes through. And when it gets a buzzword, you know, it's sometimes it gets watered down a little bit, God, yeah. (laughs) but it's, you know, a technique where you actively try to make a person question their own reality And often it starts off very small. It's usually very little things. It's, I'm trying to think of a a good example, but it might be an abuser might start off by taking the person's keys, the, the victim survivor's keys. So they're always late to their meeting, taking them, kind of hiding them when, you know, the survivor is thoroughly nervous. They'll put the keys back on the hook by the door and say they were there the whole time. What are you doing? Those those were there the entire time. And the person will say, well, well, duh, of course they were. I can't believe I missed that. So on and so forth. And it will continue to escalate to the point where it's, I'm trying to think of a larger example, but it gets to the point where you don't really, you're so unsure of yourself and you're so unsure of the things that you thought you know you did. Maybe they did happen. Maybe they didn't. It can get used as a tool for blaming a lot of like, well, of course I had to do, you know, an abuser might say, of course I had to do X, Y, Z because you did ABC when, well, first off, an abuser never has to be abusive, but also then the person is also left thinking, oh, I, I guess I did do something. You know, my reality is questioned now. So that's, I mean, that's what gaslighting is. It's very common. And it's also in this movie, we see it happen <laughs> quite frequently. Absolutely. And she even says, you know, this is a little bit later on after, well, we'll kind of, we'll fill in some of the blanks here. So <laughs> Tom, Adrian's brother visits Cecilia. And this is finally the moment where Tom admits what's going on. So Cecilia's like, I'm not buying your crap anymore. She insults him. She says, you're just as bad as he is, except you don't have a spine. You're the jellyfish version of him, which is a great insult. <laughs> I, know, I don't know I how long she's been thinking about that, but that's <laughs> solid. And so he says something along the lines of like, hey, this can all go away if you have his baby and move in with him. Because we kind of mentioned that he had, even though she had been trying to secretly take birth control pills, he had been secretly switching them, some, some out. A very um, Princess Bride situation where they're switching <laughs> the, and, you know, uh, she steals a pen from that conversation. Well, she basically says, F you to the brother, steals one of his pens that's very sharp. Fakes like she's going to die by suicide, which makes him stop her and reveal where he is. And she's that opportunity to kind of attack him. There's this whole fight and I'm kind of glossing over a lot of stuff. So feel free to interrupt me <laughs> if there's any other really big moments or stuff that you wanted to talk about. Yeah. I don't know. Did you want to talk about the reproductive coercion component? I know you kind of mentioned that earlier, but I don't know if there's other things you wanted to mention. Yeah. And yeah, because it's definitely a pretty big part of this because Like you said, when they were still together, she'd been taking birth control pills. He'd been switching them out. I always love a Princess Bride reference. It doesn't matter where it is. I love it. Um, And it's very accurate in describing what's going on. And then, so she, when she's fainted way at the beginning of the movie, they had taken her to the hospital 
got in her blood work, found out that the drug that was used to drug her was in her system. But later on here, you find out that when they did that blood work, she's pregnant and she yeah, didn't know it. I don't know if you remember, but when she gets that first phone call after they tell her what's in her system, the mm-hmm. doctor goes, oh, and there's something else I want to tell you. And she hangs up. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I thought that was really it. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no. And good foreshadowing. I, oh my God. This movie is full of, of foreshadowing. And yeah. And so you find out that the brother or not the brother, the abuser has been kind of, now that he knows this, he no longer says, oh, I have to hurt you to keep you in the relationship. You just have to have my child and that will keep you. And you find out that that's why in the first place she didn't want to have his child. And we know that reproductive coercion happens a lot in abusive relationships. I've seen it in the way that you're talking about or they're talking about where they switch her birth control. But I've also seen it in cases where women in relationships with men may poke holes in condoms or say that they're taking their birth control and they're not, or I mean, those kinds of things. And yeah, so it happens fairly frequently. And also, so we're talking about at the like long time at the beginning of this episode, children are such a good um, tool for abusers to keep somebody in the relationship. I don't like necessarily referring to children as tools, but often in abusers' eyes, that's what they see it as. They see it as this is a means to my end. And so you you kind of see that happening here too, where he's, he realizes, oh, if she has my child, she is going to be with me. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he stops her from harming herself or what he perceives is she's going to harm herself. Yeah. Another very, uh, very tactful move by her uh, (laughs) is able to kind of like start this, you know, um, fight. Obviously it her stat. She stabs him with a pen that kind of makes the suit malfunction a little bit, which makes people, the security realize she's not completely crazy, but he's still able to apprehend all the security there. Um, he gets away. She goes after him. He implies that he's going to go after Sydney. There's a big showdown at James's house mm-hmm. with Sydney. Cecilia shoots the invisible man, which is revealed to be Tom, the brother. Big plot twist. Big plot twist. We <laughs> think. And um, yes. my wife, I watched this with my wife, and the whole time she's like, "I bet it's the brother." Like I bet the <laughs> brother is like just carry because he makes a big deal about carrying out the will mm-hmm. in terms of reading that statement. So I bet she's yeah. like, he's, like he's carrying out the will or whatever. Yeah. He definitely has big creepy vibes as you're watching does. it. Yeah. So this Cecilia believes to be a smoke screen that Adrian's doing. And we kind of find that out at the end when she tries or she pretends like she's trying to bug him. I feel like I'm skipping a lot of stuff. here. <laughs> so basically <laughs> it's hard to describe plots to movies. I'm realizing this. So especially when there's so much going on like this, yeah. like Tom is dead. Everyone thinks it's over. Cecilia is like, it's not over. They find Adrian in his house. He didn't die by suicide. He's saying that his brother framed him. Cecilia's not buying this for a second. So she wears a wire and goes over to Adrian pretending to like reconcile uh, to see if she can get him to admit. Oh, go ahead. Oh, her friend who's the cop is there. He's like, okay. He's like, I'll be on the other end. You're going to go in there. You're going to get a confession out of him. I'll be in in my car. Like the very typical, you know, you see in a lot of cop shows kind of. And he kind of admits to it without admitting to it by saying surprise, which is what he would say a lot as the invisible man, Uh, but not a a clear confession that would have got him in trouble. (laughs) Is that his tagline? 
It is his tagline, yeah. It's a really terrible tagline. (laughs) She goes and gets the invisible soup that she she had hid from before, uh, makes it look like he dies by suicide for real this time, and then... You know that's the that's kind of the ending we're left with. Uh, any any big plot points I'm missing, or things that you want to kind of like throw in about how it kind of like all kind of comes to a head in this interaction at the end with her eventually killing him. Just just that I loved the ending where she, like you said, she comes out in the suit. She pulls essentially what he did to the sister. Yeah, and he, you know, she <laughs> she she kills him using the knife, and which is. You kind of see it coming, but at the same time, it's still like, oh my God, you definitely have a bit of a jump. Um, But then I love because she, she gets on the phone and she calls 911 and she's, you know, pretending to be so upset. And she's saying, I was here with him and I went to the bathroom and I came back and he had done this to him. And she's just pretending to be so upset. And she sits down kind of out of the scene of the camera and she sits down, she turns off the phone and she just stares at him and like smiles. And then she says surprise to him um, and then just waits until he <laughs> until he passes away. And and then she leaves and she says to the cop, too, he was like, he was like, you, did you really want to go in there to bug bug his house? And she was like, of course, you know, of course I did. Um, so yeah. he doesn't get in trouble later, you know. But Yeah. Yeah, and uh, intense ending, intense kind of all the way around. <laughs> but at the end, you see her smile, which is nice. Like, you see she has this moment of, like, it's over. Like, I'm actually free from this guy. Some relief. Some um, relief, the whole yeah. process. <laughs> Some relief, yeah. And that's the kind of thing I wanted to mention at the end. So a lot of movies that are like this, or horror movies in general, or uh, really any kind of movie, you know, you, you stop at a certain point and we don't see what happens after. Yeah. And obviously she's been through so much and just from your experience in terms of people going through something mm-hmm. you know, similar, if not as intense with the sister being killed and all this other stuff, what are the things that are going to be, you know, happening after, after the movie ends mm-hmm. for her? Ideally. And unfortunately not all victims and survivors can access this. But ideally, a lot of therapy and counseling for, you know, for years and years, oftentimes going way back to the beginning of this podcast and the question of why don't they just leave kind of comes later on the implied question of, well, the relationship's over now. Why are you still upset kind of thing is unfortunately a thing that you hear a lot and you know, and so for years to come, you know, she'll ideally, she she appears to have resources. So ideally, she will be working with a counselor or a therapist. I think that will probably be especially true if she decides to have her baby. We don't, that's not really touched on again. Yeah. So we don't know. But, you know, a lot of times when children are the result of sexual assault, of reproductive coercion, there's a lot of therapy that comes with having that child. Even when you love them more than anything, there's still a lot that has to do with it. Yeah, there, I mean, in a lot of cases, maybe in a very hopeful world of mine, because she's so resourced, she will help other survivors because we see that that's actually a thing that helps a lot of folks who are survivors themselves heal is to do work with other survivors. It becomes a very healing um, process. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of times 
she, well, she is very fortunate in the fact that she has, you know, friends and family on the police force. But a lot of times, if a survivor fights back, unfortunately, sometimes they get perceived as the assailant. And so in this case, she might actually then her legal problems might not be over. We're led to believe in this movie, it does. We're led to believe that. So that's nice. But um, unfortunately, a lot of victims, especially ones who are not white, who are not middle to upper class, um, who are not perceived as like the quote unquote, like normal, I hate using that term, but like what we normally think of oftentimes don't get and get the same resources, the same treatment by police, by um, shelter services. And so unfortunately, that's the case for a lot of folks. It hopefully does not seem it'll be that way for her. And yeah, she'll probably, you know, she'll have to go a lot through, you know, finding her own home. It seems like she has a really good support system in place with Sydney and Sydney's dad, James, because a lot of times it does involve with all the isolation. It does involve the rebuilding of a lot of relationships. And yeah, so that's most likely what will go on (laughs) for her. And I'm glad your answer was much more optimistic than mine. So I'm glad I let you go first because I was just thinking about like, you know, when someone goes through, I was thinking about this with movies and like, even like superhero movies where it's like, you know, you just focus on all these superheroes, you know, kicking bad guys butts and then it's over. It's like, they have to live with all of this and the things that they've seen and, you know, the buildings that fell that might have had people in them and you you make one mistake and something happens. And like, I just think about that and, you know, uh, maybe I'm because I'm a pessimist or I'm, you know, I'm ruining movies and that's uh-uh. my job or something. But uh, I, I think about that a lot in this case. It's like she's going to have a lot of like, yeah, you know, a lot to kind of like process in order to kind of like get, you know, it's not just going to be happy ever after for no. her. So she, you're right. She does have a lot of resources. And I think she'll be, you know, I, I, I like to think of it in an optimistic way as, you know, <laughs> op- you know, being able to like help others and kind of have a place and you know, live and be able to work again and all those things. But, you know, it's going to be a, it's going to be a hard road to get there. Yeah. And we saw a lot of that at the beginning, right? When you think that she's left for the first time and she is experiencing all the, that PTSD just because, you know, he's passed away. doesn't mean that that's, that's not going to go away once after the credits, you know? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, if we take the horror element out of this and just think about that first part of the movie, like that's, that could still be a very typical response. (laughs) It's like, yeah. you know, worrying about things or being hypervigilant or you know, whatever the case might be, even if everyone's telling her that her um, ex-partner is dead and maybe in like in an alternate universe, if he was dead, she might still have a lot of these experiences mm-hmm. and they're yeah. still valid, even if it's not actually him doing these things. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, the component is that she might still have some of that hypervigilance and she might have felt relief in that moment when he first was killed. But, you know, I'm sure there will be points yeah. that kind of come and go for her, which will be tough. But, you know, yeah, I like to think optimistically, too. So hopefully, um, <laughs> hopefully things go in the right direction for her afterwards. Yes. Fingers. Fingers crossed. She she is very resourceful, but but you're right. She definitely has a long road ahead of her. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention regarding this movie or something that we didn't quite touch on or something you're kind of, as you've been, we talking that you thought of? No, I don't think so. Just, just, I think, you know, there have were, you know, as we've been talking about how there were so many times where I said, Hey, this little thing, this little detail was so true to life. And this definitely this 
psychological thriller that's not true to life. There are so many details that when watching it, I would think back to most of my research is primarily qualitative. So I hear a lot of stories, right? And there were little things that would happen where I'm like, you know, that reminds me of a thing that a survivor told me. This reminds me of something that, and I would find myself thinking about that and just, yeah, that this movie while in a lot of ways is not a good representation of reality, they, one of the things that, you know, made it realistic was the fact that they had lots of little things tied in and little moments that yeah. rang very true. They, I think the people who made this movie or wrote it were, or did some research or, or were familiar with how these were or heard stories or like did a really good job of being able to connect this kind of like, I guess sci-fi element. Mark. <laughs> I don't know if that's the proper term, but uh, it doesn't feel super sci-fi. But adding this kind of like extraness to a real situation and kind yeah. of like using real components and what things look like and just kind of like adding this horror sci-fi kind of component to it. Yeah. To kind of like one emphasize these things and two kind of like make it a horror movie. Make it yeah. You know, yeah. A scary jump out kind of kind of experience, which, you know, yeah. not my favorite kind of movie, not my favorite uh, genre, but I did enjoy the movie. I don't I can't say I'm going to watch another horror movie anytime soon. <laughs> I can't say whether I got my wife was very mad at me for watching this with her. She was like, now I'm gonna be like not able to sleep tonight. And we both were kind of like a little bit, you know, on edge after watching it. Apologize um, to her for me. You can put all the blame on okay. me. I will. I will. I'll, I'll make sure that uh, she knows to blame you. <laughs> Speaking of safety plans, you got to start integrating some cartoon time before bed. Uh, I had go. the same thought. I was like, I got to do something. I, like watch something else after this to kind <laughs> yeah. of like, cleanse Luckily, my palate. We, we watch it in the middle of the day. Okay. So that was better than watching yeah. it. If we watched it at night, that would have been game over. <laughs> we watched it in the middle of the day. We watched Gone Girl. So this gave me lots of Gone Girl vibes. Oh, I've actually never seen Gone Girl. And it's one that's always kind of been on my list. And then I just have never seen it. It's kind of similar in the sense that she's kind of like manipulating from afar and has this like very like drawn out plan to get him arrested and in trouble. Gotcha. So it gave me lots of those kind of vibes where it's kind of like this creepy person is like 20 steps ahead of you kind of thing. Ooh, yeah. But we watched that at night and that freaked me out more because it was at night. Whereas yeah, this one was in the middle of the day, and it didn't freak me out as much. So that was, that was good. <laughs> and this one's this one's I think objectively scarier than Gone Girl. Gone Girl is you know a little bit more. It's got that psychological thriller and kind of like um, you know a person who's twenty steps ahead of you getting in legal trouble, but there's not that impending sense that you know. Well, she does kill. Now you know what? Never mind. They're both scary <laughs> for different reasons. You know, I'm not going to say which one's objectively scarier. But nobody's pulling your bed sheets off of you in the middle that of the night. That does not happen. That, that does is... not happen. There's no invisible suit or anything like that. It's just her kind of like being very good at being manipulative. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, thinking about scary movies, this is kind of like, are these the kind of scary movies you like to watch? Do you like all kinds of scary movies? Like, is it mostly the psychological thriller ways or? I like a, I like a lot of the things that or at least the ones that scare me the most, um, and I probably like the most, are the ones that weave in something that that they take that you're like, oh, that's just scary enough because I know that this could happen. Even if I don't think, you know, somebody's going to come after me in a suit, in an invisibility suit or whatever, sure. like something in there that makes me think like, 
oh, this is rooted enough in reality that when I go to bed at night, I'm going to be thinking about <laughs> if this could happen or, you know, um, <laughs> definitely the kind of stuff that gets me. Yeah. And which is funny because those are, those should be the scariest to me as well, because they are things that are rooted enough in reality where they could happen. But for me, the stuff that's like really supernatural is really what gets me. I can't watch those. <laughs> if I had to like pick a, fi- I, I, I've watched some horror movies. The horror movies I like are like the really cheesy ones. Like, <laughs> Give me Freddy Krueger <laughs> off making puns all day. I can handle that. I saw the original Friday the 13th, and that was a solid movie. You know, if you've seen the movie, obviously you know this, but like Jason's barely in that movie at all. And I think that's crazy. That yeah. People don't know that. So I think the, origi- the original Friday the 13th movie is one of the best horror slasher yeah. films ever created. Yeah. I like that. It's a really interesting movie. And it, it you know, I'm a thousand percent biased to Jason, though. So <laughs> yeah, so you, you've gone you've gone further in the in the franchise. Here. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I've Jason seen is, one and two. So it's I unparalleled. Saw, so I you didn't Jason even get to the infamous sad. mask. Yeah, you didn't even get to the infamous mask. I've never seen him with the mask. Yeah, I've never. I, like I know he wears the mask because it's iconic, but I've never actually seen a movie with him wearing the mask. <laughs> Did y'all yeah. see the new Halloween movie that came out a couple years ago? Did y'all see that one? No. I oh, didn't. it was good. It was, was it? really good. Yeah. I saw yeah. one of the. I, wasn't there? Was there a remake in the mid two thousands as well? Yeah, there. There was. A, I think yeah, I saw that one. There was one of them that was bad, and I don't. I don't want to get on the the podcast <laughs> capping, but I think it might have been that one. <laughs> yeah, I didn't like it. So I mean, that could have been that one. I wasn't. I, I just. I was really like Freddy Krueger. I saw a couple of those movies, which is Nightmare on Elm Street. Those were those are called because eventually, like the first one's kind of scary, but he gets like funny. As time goes mm-hmm. on, it's like, yeah, we'll play into the fact yeah. that he's got this hilarious, like, one-liners while he's killing kids. And, like, I don't know. Something about that's kind of fun. Um, but, man. I can't <laughs> killing I kids with one-liners. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it's a fun <laughs> on to it. And they're pretty ridiculous deaths. They're, they're, they're so outrageous and so silly that, like, it's yeah. not as scary to me. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I watched, oh, gosh, what was it? Um, one of those ghost movies where a person's... Uh, I can't remember what it, uh, um, Insidious. I watched Insidious. Oh, I don't even know that I can. I have not seen that mm. one. I don't know if I could watch that one. No <laughs> thanks to that. No thanks to that. I just and I can't do. I can't do haunted house. Can you guys do haunted houses? Uh uh-uh. uh I can't do them. Uh, no, 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 I can't do them. My brother and my dad love them. Yeah. And I remember we went, I was, I think we were kids and I was probably like, I don't know, 10 or 11. And we go in to go to a a haunted house. So it was a whole family, my mom, dad, my brother and me. And there were nothing in, there was just in the, in the line, we got tickets and we were just in line to go in. And there were just people with chainsaws, just chainsaws. (laughs) And, you know, they weren't real chainsaws. They just, you know, they don't have the spikes on them or whatever, but. I was so freaked out. My mom walked walked me out and gave tickets to someone else. And my brother and my dad went in. <laughs> and I do very distinctly remember that my mom chose a group of like teenage girls who were probably like, you know, 14, 15, 16, while I was like 10 or 11. So like the most embarrassing people <laughs> to see you be scared, like slightly older teenage girls when you're a, a preteen voice, like a uh, great job, mom, on that one. Uh, upping the embarrassment. Sounds like an episode of Doug. <laughs> it does sound like an episode of Doug. <laughs> but then I think we waited in the, we might have, I don't know, we might have waited in the um, the parking lot afterwards just until they were done. Just, I was not having it. Uh, but yeah I don't like being scared so um, thanks for that Uh, 
Thanks to all of you for listening. And a special thank you to our editor, Sandra Lynn Paul. If you have your own podcast or would like to start a podcast and you need help with the editing, producing, or marketing of your podcast, you can find Sandra at sandralynco.com. That's S-A-N-D-R-A-L-Y-N-N-C-O.com. If you'd like to become a part of Relevation Nation and get daily updates that can help elevate your relationship, you can follow Relevate on Twitter at MyRelevate or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash See you next time.